Well, good morning, everyone. It is so good to be back here after a few weeks I was gone. I was uh, in my family. We took a little vacation, and even before the vacation, we weren't in the pulpit here because we were preaching back in Simi Valley. Um, Three weeks in the middle of summer away from your church family feels like an eternity. And uh, I'm surprised. I, I come back and I'm talking to the guys. What did I miss? What did I miss? And I haven't really missed anything. It just feels like I've missed stuff because I've been gone so long. And now to be back um, last week and hear Pastor Jordan uh, preach was, was a gift. And now to be back here with you all and to be able to open up the Word with you is um, a thrill. I'm so thankful for this. One of the things I, I love about vacation this is, again, my nerd side coming out, and I'm just going to be very honest about this. Um, I don't know about you, but one of the most optimistic moments in my life is when I'm picking what books I want to bring with me on vacation. I'm like, I, I get this idea that I can just read every book on my bookshelf, and so I'm packing them all up because one of the things I love to do on vacation is read. And uh, like I said, I always think I can read more than I really do. But one of the things I was able to do this time on vacation was to finish uh, the second volume of Charles Spurgeon's autobiography. Um, Some of you might be taking a big uh, sigh of relief because that might mean the end of Spurgeon's illustrations and quotes in my sermons, um, which has been going on for quite some time. Everything I read tends to just show up in a sermon at some point or another. Um, But I, I finished it. But... It struck me again that throughout history, people who have been used of God to accomplish amazing, remarkable things for the church have been people who have struggled with doubt, fear, anxiety, worry, even lack of assurance of their own salvation. You think not Charles Spurgeon, not the towering figure. Charles Spurgeon, the guy who preached to multitudes, the man whose sermons were spread all over the globe and whom pastors admired and learned from. Not him. Certainly it couldn't be him. He was was loved by everyone who knew him. He had done so much. He had thousands of people joining his church just to hear him preach. He started a college to train pastors. He started an orphanage to help children. His wife adored him. His sons admired him. Certainly it couldn't be this man Charles Spurgeon who struggled with assurance. And let me tell you that he did. He did in a big way. In fact, uh, not only at the beginning of his life, after his conversion, when he realized that once he was free from sin in his salvation, that wasn't the end of his battle against sin, and he was almost more afraid of sin after he was converted than before. But even toward the end of his life, as he suffered some hard sicknesses and almost unbearable diseases, that would rack him with pain and make him bedridden for months at a time. Toward those ending years of his life, he struggled often with deep and serious despair. Deep and serious fear. In fact, at one point, he wrote this, I began to doubt in my own mind whether I really enjoyed the things which I preached to others. 
It seemed to me to be a dreadful thing to be only a waiter and not a guest at the gospel feast. Here I am telling all these other people about it, and yet it feels so distant from me. In fact, at one point in his life, this is kind of a funny story, he was away from his church, and so away from the responsibility to preach, and he was feeling particularly dry in his walk with the Lord, and so he went and sought out a, a church. He found a Methodist chapel that he went in, he kind of sat toward the back. At this point in Spurgeon's life, he was so well known that people would recognize him on sight. People knew his sermons, read his books, and had followed his ministry for some years. He had started when he was a teenager at that church, and so by this point, he's so well known. He shows up in the back of uh, this old Methodist chapel. As the preacher begins to preach, Spurgeon can't contain himself. He begins to weep. He's weeping almost uncontrollably at the sermon. He wrote, reflecting on this, the tears flowed freely from my eyes. I was moved to the deepest emotion by every sentence of the sermon. And I felt all my difficulty removed. For the gospel I saw was very dear to me and had a wonderful effect on my own heart. He was so touched by it that after the sermon he went up to the preacher and thanked him. And of course the preacher, this is Charles Spurgeon. You see Spurgeon coming up. He turns beet red, this preacher. And after Spurgeon thanks him for this great sermon, kind of embarrassed, the preacher says, well, it was one of your sermons that I was preaching this morning. (laughs) And Spurgeon goes, I know. But it was the exact message I wanted to hear. And it was a simple gospel message. Like many of Spurgeon's sermons, if you read through them, oh, they're, they're very clear. They, they teach the broad truths of the Christian life, but he is always and ever pointing to Jesus Christ. And isn't it true, those of you who've been walking with the Lord know this to be true, that you don't only need the gospel to come to Christ when you're an unbeliever to make that profession of faith and to understand the love of God for you demonstrated on the cross, You don't only need the gospel then to come to Christ to understand the grace of God, but you who are following Jesus and who have for some years know this, that you need the gospel again and again and again. Amen? That you don't tire of it. That if you're at all aware of your own heart in the issues that are going on in the indwelling, the, the, the sin that seems to constantly rear its ugly head, you always need a gospel. And I want to look at this morning a text that is so at the heart of the gospel that I hope it's an encouragement to all of us. We've been talking about uh, the, the question of assurance, the doctrines of assurance. How do we know that we're saved? How can we know that we're redeemed? How, we, how can we for sure uh, know that on judgment day, when I go to meet my maker, that I will be found reconciled to God? I mean, that's at the top of the list of questions human beings need to ask. Am I right? I mean, if we haven't, if, if you're not a believer and you've never really asked that question, you've never really thought about what happens when you meet your maker, then let this morning be an invitation to ask that question. How do you think about that question? 
Do you know, and even you Christians, and after just starting this series and only having been in this for a couple weeks, already I've heard that this is something that Christians need to hear. And on a personal level, this is something I need to hear. Uh, the, the greatness of the gospel and the grounds, the foundation that I have for certainty. I don't want to live in tormented doubt all my life and cross my fingers on my deathbed. I want to have a certainty. And guess what? The Bible teaches us that we can. And that's really good news. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Just by way of reminder, the, the series we've, we're in, in, this assurance series, we've started by declaring what are the objective realities of salvation. What is objectively true regardless of how you feel, right? What are the things that are objectively, unalterably true regardless of what experience you may be having right now? in terms of your walk with the Lord. And you have to go there. You have to start there. You have to start with the doctrinal foundations of salvation before you can build up from there and actually enjoy in your daily lives the, the blessings of assurance of salvation. you got to know how salvation works. And so we've been spending some of these introductory messages laying the building blocks and in the second portion of this series, we'll get to the more subjective, personal experiences of assurance. If you're waiting for that, like, well, how do I know my faith is real? You know, that's a common one. How do I know I've repented enough? That's another common one. How do I know that I'm the kind of person God saves? That's a common one. Well, that's coming, but to get there, to really get there where we can build, we have to start here, and we start here by drawing a deep foundation into the wells of salvation and how God saves sinners. So you're in Romans chapter 5. Are we in Romans chapter 5? Turn there. If you've got a pew Bible or one that's under your chair, feel free to grab that. And 942 is the page that you'll find this text on. And I'm going to read the entire portion that we'll look at. We won't have time to go into all the great and beautiful nuances of this passage, but we'll be able to get the big picture and be able to draw some of the foundations for why we can be sure of our salvation. Let's look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we also be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ 
through whom we have now received reconciliation. So there's our text. Let's go back to the very beginning and look at that first statement. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, what do you do when you see a therefore? You say, what's the therefore, therefore? It always is building off something previously that has been said. And so I trust that you're here not because you need to hear another preacher, but because you want to learn from the Bible. And I just want to do my best to explain what the Bible says about justification and just what it means to be justified by faith. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of context here. Romans is a glorious book in the Bible. And leading up to Romans chapter 5, there's four chapters. You can count. I trust you already know that. But you start in chapter 1, and what you find is Paul is beginning to build a case for the sinfulness of humanity. We have to say what the Bible says, and so we have no shame in saying that Paul starts out by declaring in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He goes on from verse 18 to 32 to describe the sinful condition of fallen, unrighteous humanity. He goes into depth to declare that their fallenness has led them to suppress the truth, that they do not know God, they do not honor God, they do not, ex- they do not worship God, they exchange the worship of God for the worship of other things. This is the unrighteousness of men. And now, if he's, it's almost as if Paul is explaining this and he has in his mind these people who think, ah, that is true, but it doesn't apply to me. And there's all these sinners over there, and, and yes, they are unrighteous, and, and yes, Paul, go ahead and say how guilty they are. And then in chapter 2, he turns the corner and points the finger at that person who might think that he was righteous. In passing judgment, this is chapter 2, verse 1, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another you condemn yourself. You practice the very same things. Oh, you thought it was just the pagans that were sinners. You thought it was just the unrighteous. Well, let me point also to those who are religious. Let me appoint also to those who are self-righteous. Let me point also to the people who judge all the other people for being sinners. In other words, in chapter 1, he's, he's saying all the pagans and unrighteous people are guilty. In chapter 2, he's saying all the right, self-righteous people are guilty. In other words, he's basically condemning all of humanity. <laughs> this, is a, this is an interesting way to start a letter, right? You got the self-righteous, they're guilty. You got the unrighteous, they're guilty. Well, who's not guilty? Is there anybody who's not guilty? Chapter 3, uh, just in case you were wondering, verse 9, no. Or verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Could it be more clear? Everybody is under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay, so in case you didn't get it from chapter 1 and chapter 2, chapter 3 makes it very clear that there is no righteous person, that every person is under sin. Everybody is unrighteous. There's no one righteous. There's no one seeking God. And you might be sitting here going, hey, I struggle with assurance. What's all this have to do with me struggling with assurance? Does it really help to build assurance by talking about the universal sinfulness of humanity? How's that supposed to help? Well, the Bible is often counterintuitive because God's wisdom is higher than ours. But here's what Paul's doing. 
He's going to teach that actual true assurance does not grow in the soil of self-righteousness, but actually Christ's righteousness. You say, well, how does that work? Here it is. True assurance will grow in the soils of abject hopelessness. You only will turn to Christ when you're totally hopeless. In reality, if we don't really get our sin, if we still think, like, I got something to offer God, I can impress Him, I can do these things and climb a ladder, and eventually God will love me, eventually I'll impress Him enough that He'll be obligated to save me. If we think that's the way God works, then Paul is taking his axe and he's hacking away at any belief that you might have that you can impress God by your own efforts. That's what he's doing. That's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 are all about. We're all unrighteous. We're all fallen. We're all guilty. We're all deserving of God's wrath. We've all committed cosmic crimes against a holy God. We have no hope in ourselves. This is what Paul is saying. There's nothing we can do. You can't change your heart yourself. You can't climb your way out of your guilt. You can't cleanse yourself by your own hands. You can't do any of that. That's what Romans 1-3 through is all about. And then the tone begins to change. Toward the end of chapter 3, into the chapter 4, the tone changes, the essential message begins to come forth. But you can only really understand it if you've understood the bad news. And so the good news starts to come forth that in light of this universal guilt, in light of the reality that no one can save themselves, God has put forward His Son, Jesus Christ, as a Savior. There's hope in Jesus Christ because Although nobody has your own righteousness and everybody deserves the righteous justice of God, God has provided His Son, Jesus Christ, to give righteousness and to take on the sins of those who trust Him and pay for them Himself. He provides a Savior. And He begins explaining that. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. This is a great little verse that kind of summarizes Uh, what Paul's point is here. In chapter 4, verse 5, he says, uh, I guess you can start in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, keep that word in your mind, justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who does not work, that is, the people who stop trying to self-save, the people who stop trying to work to impress God, the people who give up and say, I'm a failure, I'm a sinner, yes, Paul, you're right, I am worthy of the just punishment of God, you get to that point and you cast yourself at the feet of Jesus, those people are always forgiven. 
They are counted righteous. In other words, they are given the righteousness that they could never have. God's righteousness is shared with them through Jesus Christ. Jesus gives them the gift of his own righteousness, and they now, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, have full and complete access to God, full and complete forgiveness, and they're welcome into the presence of God. The theological word here that we've seen is justification. Justified. Justification. It is the idea. It is the idea of righteousness being credited to your account, though you did not earn it. You follow? To be justified is to be given a gift of righteousness though you have not it in your own self. It is a foreign righteousness in that it comes from the outside in and is given to you freely as a gift. The idea is this, all humanity is standing before God without righteousness and worthy of God's righteous punishment. We have not deserved anything. We are unable to save ourselves. We can do nothing, but God puts forward His own Son and says, stop working for your salvation. Stop trying to save yourself and look to Jesus Christ. And the moment you do that, you are justified. What does that mean? That means the gavel in heaven sounds and you are declared in a legal sense to be innocent. You are declared forever righteous. God changes your status. It is kind of a legal word, this justification idea. You are as if before a judge, you're unable to justify yourself, and God, based on your faith in Jesus Christ, because you're united to Christ by faith, says, I now declare you to be eternally and unchangeably righteous. You are forever justified. It's not a process. You don't grow into it. It is the nanosecond you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It is an eternal declaration about your status. You are now justified. Innocent. And all the good blessings that come out of your justification are now yours. Now that's chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And we get to chapter 5. Now here is where I kind of need to say where a lot of us go wrong. Now, if you're struggling with assurance, if you're one that sometimes goes in and out of doubt, does God really love me? Does God really want me in His presence? Am I really welcome with Him? Does He care that much? Here's what we often do. We confuse our justification... Remember, once for all declaration of your status before God. You are now innocent, righteous. We confuse our justification with our sanctification. You say, what's sanctification? Sanctification is your growth and progress and holiness to become more like Jesus Christ. Here's what we do. J.C. Ryle, by the way, says that of all the causes of lack of assurance, a defective view of the doctrine of justification is the first reason. And his whole point is to say that this is what we do. We, we take the idea of our justification, that God declares us to be righteous, that God declares us to be accepted by Him. God gives us uh, the righteousness, and so we're in Christ and we're innocent. We take that once-for-all legal final declaration and we begin to think that it is dependent on my performance. It's like this. Imagine an orphan taken off the streets and adopted by a loving family. And the parents, the new parents of this orphan take the orphan to the courthouse 
And the judge makes a legal declaration about this orphan's new status. He says, orphan, you are now legally part of this family. It is a legal declaration. It is once for all, once the gavel sounds, it is finished, it is complete, it is final. It is a declaration of the new status of the orphan. Now, imagine that this orphan, for whatever reason, began to think that if he didn't do the right things in the home, that his parents would unadopt him and he would become an orphan again. Now, that orphan might be really hardworking, right? He might be the most obedient orphan in the family, most obedient kid in the family. And it might be that he's thinking, if I don't do exactly what my parents have said I need to do, they might let me go. My status as an adopted child is dependent on my performance. And if he or she, if that orphan makes that connection and they begin to think that I'm only loved by my parents because I'm doing these things, because I do the dishes, because I vacuum the floor, because I'm nice and obedient, because I'm proper, if, if they're loving me because of this reason, then that poor orphan is going to what? He's always going to be living in fear and doubt. Because he will never know if he for sure did enough to earn the love of his parents. And even though he might know that the love that initially brought the orphan into the family was unearned, he might begin to think, in the unarticulated back of his mind, he might begin to think, well, maybe if I sin too much, they'll unadopt me. If I don't perform well, I'll get unadopted. Friends, this is what so many Christians are doing. They have believed, yes, they're justified by the grace of God. But then they begin to think that their justification might increase with their good performance or decrease with their bad performance. And God will be less willing to welcome them if they are performing poorly and more willing to accept them if they're performing well. Here is where we go wrong. Listen, God justifies without reference to your deserving it. Justification is a legal declaration that you are righteous forevermore, and that has nothing to do with your performance. It's unaffected from your sanctification. Your sanctification will go up and it will go down and it will not for one nanosecond alter your justification. That cannot change because it's Christ's righteousness and His righteousness is perfect and it could never fail you. You can't change your own righteousness if it's Christ's righteousness. You're standing with God if it's Christ's righteousness. Here's a test. Ask yourself this question. This will help you see if you are believing that your justification might get affected by your sanctification or your standing with God might go up or down with your performance. Do you think that on bad days that God loves you less? Do you think that during the harder seasons where you're spiritually dry that God is less willing to listen to your prayers? Or that you're less welcome into His presence if you're struggling with a particular sin? Do you think your security is more or less secure based on how well you're doing in your walk? 
If you do, this is what you've done. You've begun to see or think that your performance might change your standing with God. And justification says no. Once for all, God, by His amazing grace, declares you to be unalterably, unchangeably righteous without reference to whether you're having a good day or a bad day. You cannot become less justified and you cannot become more justified. Alright, so all of that is kind of background to this Romans chapter 5. Now you know what justification is. And let's just read this first time because now we're going to do this. Now we're going to see all the awesome, wonderful, breathtaking, life-changing benefits of justification. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's the declaration. By the way, if you want to be justified, you want that righteousness, you want to be forgiven, here is what you do. By faith, you believe in, on the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe what Romans 1 says about you, that you're a guilty sinner deserving of God's righteous wrath. You believe that. And then you also, at the same time, believe that God has provided salvation in Christ and you look to Him for salvation and He fully and completely grants it to you the moment you believe. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, here it is, our first blessing of justification is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The moment you believe, the war's over. The moment you believe and God declares you to be righteous, Whatever relational strife, whatever relational tension, the battle that was, at, was, was there between you and God, there's no more. Peace with God now reigns. Now I want to make this clear. This is objectively true regardless of how you feel. If you don't feel peace, with God, and maybe you, for whatever reasons, human beings are complex people. For whatever reason, you feel a lack of peace. If you have faith the, in Jesus Christ, the objective reality, regardless of how you feel, is that you are at peace with God. The war is over. You say, what war? What are you talking about? Well, the Bible talks about that those who are not repentant and have not trusted Christ are at war with God. Uh, Romans chapter 8 says they're hostile to God. James chapter 4 verse 4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. In other words, when we take sides with the world and against Jesus Christ, we are declaring war against God. That's what we do before we bend the knee to Jesus Christ. If you have not repented, and acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ, what that means is, biblically speaking, is that you are resisting the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And what the Bible says is there's a war. There's an enmity. There's a battle going on and you are raging against your Maker if you're not a Christian. But then the Bible also says that the moment you hold up the white flag in repentance and you come to Jesus in humility and say, I have sinned against you, and you trust in Him, what the Bible says here, you are justified. That is a once-for-all declaration. And then the benefit of that ju justification is this, you're at peace. There's no more war. There's peace that reigns. There's no more tension. 
You are not resisting Him. Sure, you'll fall into sin here and there. Every Christian will. We are not yet glorified. But the war is over. And the objective truth is that there is peace in your relationship with God. You don't have to be tormented. That you're so uncertain of what your relationship with God is like. You don't have to wonder. The reality is peace. Guys, this gets better. Because this is only the beginning. Justification means that we have peace with God. But let's look at what he continues to say. Look at verse 2. Through Him, that's Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let's start with that first part of that sentence. You now not only are experiencing peace with God, objective peace with God, but secondly, you stand in grace. Through Him, that's through Christ, the moment you've, you've come to Him, you've trusted Him, you get access. This is a permanent word. This is an idea of something that is lasting. This is not something that you go in and out and in and out of that you might be standing in grace and you might not be standing in grace. Once you by faith are in Christ, you have this once for all access to this grace He talks about that you stand in. Of course, the idea of stand is the idea of this is now that you're standing with God. This is how your life is. You are now a recipient of God's grace. What is grace? This is probably, uh, this is so mind-boggling, it's hard for our minds to understand. It is the undeserved favor of God. It is the reality that God gives and gives and gives to people who do not deserve it. It is His desire, His eagerness, His enthusiasm to bless people who could do nothing to attain the blessing themselves. It is that God is disposed favorably toward you. Uh, to, to help us understand it, sometimes it's really good to do contrasts. To give you the, what it, what the opposite of living in grace and standing in grace might mean. I want you to think of uh, friendships you might have. There, there are people who have tried to categorize different types of friendships you have. And um, there's one category of friendship that has been labeled a transactional friendship. When I describe it, you might think, oh, I have some of these. A transactional friendship is essentially this. I do good to you. And you do good to me. <laughs> if I scratch your back, you scratch mine. If I'm going to pour out and sacrifice to you, I'm only doing so because I expect you to do the same for me. If you're going to be good to me, I'll be good to you. If you're not going to be good to me, I don't feel any obligation to do good to you. This works itself out in many relationships that we have. In fact, I believe that this is way more common than we think because I think it's part of the toxic poison of Eden that is in all of our blood. We are sinners and therefore we'd like to treat people in a transactional way where we will only do them good if we feel that we will get good in return. Some parents are transactional parents. The kids are behaving good. The kids are obeying your rules. The parents are nice. The parents are encouraging. They're the best parents you could possibly meet. And the moment the kids act up, the parents become cold or explosive or angry in a sinful and harmful and harsh way. They're transactional. They're only going to bless the children if the children are worthy of a blessing. Some marriages are transactional marriages. 
You do nice things to me, I do nice things to you. You do the dishes, I'll let you watch a football game later on. You help out a little more around the house, then I'll, you know, start talking to you again. You know, you, you, you make deals. It's like you're always making deals. It's less of a marriage and more like bartering at a swap meet. You're like, okay, if you, what are you going to do? What am I going to do? And if, if you do that much, I'm willing to do this much. And, and let's try to make sure that we're both kind of given a little bit enough to get the other person to give some. It's transactional. And some people live their whole marriages that way. And it's always difficult. And there's always fighting because at the end of the day, they're only giving what they hope to get in return. Friends, Transactional friendships are not based in love. They're not. They, they, they can sometimes look that way because there's giving going on. They're actually rooted in selfishness. If you have a transactional friendship, it's because you don't actually love that person, but you like what they might offer you, and so you do nice things to them because you think that they might do nice things to you in return. It's a transaction. So many human relationships are characterized by transactional friendships, transactional relationships. And let me say this clearly, God is not a transactional God. Your failures do not make Him love you less. Your successes don't make Him more inclined to love you more. Your coldness does not make him turn cold. Your apathy does not make him apathetic toward you. The grace he gives is without condition. You stand in grace. And he is not a transactional God waiting to see if you can do your part of the bargain so that he can do his part. He has come when you did not deserve any good thing and he has given you salvation. And that is now the way He walks with you. You stand in grace. If God had given you grace because you performed well, that wouldn't be grace. That'd be your due pay for what you did. You earned that one. If God could take away your grace because you failed, it's not grace. It's not grace. Grace is God treating us with unrelenting love without the slightest reference to whether we deserve it. And so now, what does this mean? You walk, you stand, you live, you breathe, you go to work, you go to school, you stay at home, whatever it is your life looks like. You are standing in the midst of this God who loves you so deeply that He looks at you with a disposed He wants to give grace. He gives grace. He lavishes you in grace. He's not waiting for you to earn what He's given you. He knows you never could. It is delight to just pour out grace to you. What does this mean? He he doesn't get tired of you. He never gets fed up with you. He's never had it up to here with you. He's not surprised at your frailty and weakness. He's not shocked when you mess up. He's not impatient at how slow it's taking you to learn the lesson he's trying to teach you. Grace means he's sympathetic. Grace means he's a great high priest who understands. Grace means he's patient. He's not going to wait until you fail enough and then he's going to go, all right, this guy's not getting it. I'm out. He's patient, he's loving, he's gracious, and you stand in his grace. 
Spurgeon put it this way. Jesus is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he's always taking the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lays ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you will always find it in him. You stand in grace. You live in grace. The grace of God is now yours. You have obtained access to it, Christian. And now this defines your life. Stop trying to work to earn your favor with God, to impress Him. Don't try to build your assurance on the sinking sand of your own effort. Look to the grace of God. That's your assurance. You try to look at yourself to get assurance, you're going to fail every single time. Do I have enough fruit? My faith strong enough? My repentance good enough? Look to Christ and recite these realities. Uh, in Christ, I'm justified, and as a result of my justification, I'm at peace with God. And I stand in His grace. That's objective. That doesn't have anything to do with whether I feel or not. That's objective. And look at this. Thirdly, you can rejoice in hope. You can rejoice in hope. You, you, you are in peace with God. You stand in the grace of God. Now you can rejoice in hope. And we, the second part of verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So when I say to my kids every once in a while, something along the lines of, after dinner, we're going to go get ice cream. What they don't do is sit there stoically and go, okay, I will wait for the appropriate time. And when dinner is over, I will be very excited about getting my ice cream. What happens? The moment I say ice cream, it's almost like they can sense it. It's coming out and they're anticipating it's going to be ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. I'm going to get ice cream. And the moment that they've sensed that that's going to happen in some time in the future, they're rejoicing right then. Because to them... Daddy's word is good. They're going to believe what I say. If I say I'm going to do it, they think, okay, daddy's going to say this. It's going to happen. And this is exactly right here with these words. Christians, you have permission to rejoice right now. This is gloriously true. That God has not said He's going to give you ice cream. He's given you all things. He's already given you forgiveness. He's already given you His Spirit. He's promised you an inheritance. And in eternity, it's all yours. For all eternity to be enjoyed without any sin getting in the way. Isn't that great? This is a promise that we get to have that God has said and His Word is far more sure than any dad promising ice cream to his kids. And so here's the deal. You can rejoice in hope of the glory of God now. This day. This moment. Because you can be certain that you are at peace with God, that you stand with God, and because you're at peace, because you stand in His grace, that one day He will bring you home to glory. He will share His own glory with you as you become glorified and share a glorified body for all eternity. That is yours. He will do that. He will not break His promises. Every good promise that God has made will assuredly come to pass. You can rejoice now. You can rejoice like giddy children who have just been told they're getting ice cream. Because what we're getting is infinitely better than any ice cream. And these are, listen, these are benefits that are ours 
not as something detached from Jesus. It's like if we get Jesus, he might also give us these things. So I know I'm, I'm close to Jesus, but, but I also got to somehow work that relationship where I get more. Listen, if you have Christ, you have all. If you have a relation with him, you have this hope. In Christ, all things are yours. 1 Timothy 1.1, Christ Jesus is our hope. And so you don't have to finagle Jesus to get more blessing. You have Jesus. You have all blessings. Permanently guaranteed for you as a believer. Now let me just go where the text goes. Because Paul seems to almost anticipate the person in this room who goes, okay, I get that. But life is hard. And I'm hurting. And I'm suffering. I stand in grace. There's peace with God. I have a hope in heaven someday. But right now, life is hard and I can't imagine rejoicing. Maybe some of you are more at that point. And that was often Spurgeon's experience where the physical pain that he went through was so intense that it caused him spiritual doubt. And because of the pain, he wept to God and he cried out, for relief, and God often did not grant it. In this life, at least, he did not grant it. And so Paul, to, to put some foundation of that statement about how we can rejoice, this is not flippant. This is not ignore all the pain and sorrow of this world. This is not just ignore what you're going through and act as if everything's okay and just try to forget it and just rejoice. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing. We know this. We, we hold to this. We believe this. We can even rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. See, we had the hope to begin with, and then we start questioning, can I have this hope if I'm suffering? And Paul actually says, well, you actually get more hope if you're going through suffering right now. Because the process that God has taken you through will result in abounding hope. You can actually get more hope. Listen, suffering does not mean God has forgotten you or forsaken you. It means God's working something out precious in you for His glory and for your good. This hope won't put us to shame. You won't get your hopes up and then get them dashed because God will be good to keep His promises. You can rejoice in hope no matter what you're going through. And if, and I know some of you are, going through pain right now, tension right now, difficulty right now, you have even greater reason to rejoice. Because God is doing good things in you and through you for His glory. And you also have this promise that your suffering will not last forever. So hold on. And recognize, you know, you're, you're walking in the grace of God. You are at peace with God. And your suffering doesn't mean that God is angry with you. It means He's doing something good in you. And so we get to another benefit of justification here. Not only are you at peace and you're standing in the grace of God and you're rejoicing in hope, you can do that right now. You receive God's love. You receive 
God's love. The justification benefits are just piling on, aren't they? They just keep coming. We get one after another. And look at verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This is like a dual promise almost. He's saying that God's love is, uh, is not measured out in small portions and distributed little by little to us. It's like God is lavish. It's a flood. I mean, if you could envision in your mind a flood breaking through a dam and flooding under the streets and flooding into your life, this is the picture that this intends to communicate and convey. Love of God flooding down from heaven to you. And you say, well, what evidence do I have to even know that that's happening well the spirit comes with that love it is his love that is so real that the spirit comes as well and lives within you it's as if god can't get close enough to you that he wants to even take up resident with residence within you so as to demonstrate his amazing love he inhabits you the objective reality for those who are trusting jesus right now is that you are loved by god and the Spirit now lives within you. This is extravagant love. You, you, you can't fathom. This is, don't, don't be surprised if your little human heart can't fathom all this love. It is like a thimble trying to take in the Atlantic Ocean. We can't possibly imagine this great love for us. All we can do is read the text and say it must be true. It must be true because God said it's true. He loves us that much. You say, well, how do I get my head around this? Paul, Paul knew you, you couldn't get your head around this. And so he goes to try to show the uniqueness of the love of God. Look at verse 6. For while we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He's going to build the case, again, that this love is not transactional. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't perform enough to be a recipient. Like, okay, you're a worthy recipient of my love because you've been doing well in your life. No, you were weak, it says, while we're still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see the words that describe us in this? What do we bring to the table? We're weak, we're ungodly, we are sinners. Verse 10, if we were to read a little bit further, we're enemies. That's who we were when God set his love upon us. He loved me before I could ever love him. He came for me when I wasn't interested in him coming for me. I would have happily ignored him and he loved me enough to press through my ignorance. What amazing grounds for assurance. If he loved you at your worst, if he loved you when you were a rebel, well, of course he'll love you as a child. If he loved you when you were at war with him, of course he'll love you now that there's peace. If he loved you when you were at your worst, he will love you as you make your frail steps of obedience like a child learning to walk again. He will love you. He will love you. He will never stop loving his children. Uh, it reminded me as I was studying this of the old hymn in tenderness, which goes, uh, he died for me 
while I was sinning. Needy and poor and blind, He whispered to assure me, I found Thee, Thou art mine. I never heard a sweeter voice. It made my aching heart rejoice. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. The grace that brought me to the fold of God. We would have never found Him if it wasn't for His grace. And we could never have loved Him enough to earn His love in return. He loved us while we were against Him and while we were His enemies. And that is good news. If any of you have come in not a Christian, and you're right now, you know in your heart, you are an enemy of God, well, the good news is this very moment you could go from enemy to child, from enemy to forgiven, from sinner to saint, all by grace, because he loves his children. Again, if you struggle with knowing for sure that you are loved by God, come back to this text. He said, well, it couldn't have been on my performance because my performance was nil. I was weak, I was a sinner, I was ungodly, I was an enemy. And therefore, he won't keep loving me based on my performance, but based on the performance of his son, which was perfect and is credited to my account by faith. And the last benefit of justification will summarize essentially verses 9 to 11 is that you are reconciled to God. You're reconciled. That's a relational word. It's an idea of adoption. It's the idea of a father embracing a son that was once estranged. It has undertones of great, exuberant love. That though there was a separation, there's now a being brought near. That the father, like that prodigal that was so far, and as he's coming home, the father sees him and jumps up and runs after him and embraces him. says, my son, you were lost, but now you're found. Reconciliation. We have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall be saved by his life. He lives for us. He died for us. He intercedes for us. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christian, doesn't say you have to have strong faith. Doesn't say you have to have perfect faith. It is the very presence of faith. In the moment you have true faith in Jesus Christ, the objective reality is this. Peace with God. Standing in grace. It means that you are loved by God. And it means that yet now the relationship is fixed. No more war, but reconciliation. A fatherly embrace that you can enjoy. Again, let me just say it. If you're not a Christian, these gifts are free. So you can turn away from whatever self-righteousness you might be seeking to attain in your own and you can look to Christ and He will forgive all your sins and give you a real righteousness that can stand before God on Judgment Day. Or if you've been a rebel and you've been running away from Him and you know that you're a sinner, you can come to Jesus for full and complete forgiveness and He will justify you forever and you will be just as righteous as the very Son of God the moment you believe. If they're yours or if you want them, they're yours, these gifts, and you can have them. If you, as a believer, often 
fight this battle. You go back and forth. Is it real in my mind? Am I truly with God? Am I redeemed? Am I going to be able to stand before God and the judgment? Go back to this text and preach the gospel to yourself. Give yourself a sermon like Spurgeon did that will come back and get you and help you in your hardest and darkest times. And you tell yourself, by faith I'm justified. Not by things I did, but just believing I'm justified. And I have peace with God and I stand in grace and I can rejoice in hope and I am extravagantly loved and I am reconciled to my Father in heaven and rejoice because all those promises are true right now and regardless of how you feel and they have eternal, forever ramifications. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our own weakness that we have a hard time holding on to Your promises. But Lord, we are grateful that our salvation is not dependent on our ability to hold on to Your promises, but Your ability to hold on to us. Thank You that our justification is forever written in stone. It cannot be unchanged. It cannot be changed. It will be unchanged forever. And the moment we believe, we are secure. And so, Lord, I pray that as this text says, that we would rejoice now. We would rejoice now that we would be a rejoicing people, thrilled at the promise of our eternal destiny being with You in glory. We thank You for the precious truths of this text. In Jesus' name, Amen.